Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back, listeners, to The Whole View, episode 410. Have I it really done, is this time. Have I done the math correctly? <laughs> um, so I'm going to be honest. We have had a quarantine update show on the docket for a few weeks, and I've been having some feels, <laughs> and we keep pushing it off. But this week, we're talking... Um, just about our own updates, as well as obviously um, updates to what's happening in the world and updates to science, because that's what we do. Um, and I just want to start off by by saying um, thank you for those of you who have been so supportive and part of the community that Sarah and I knew that you were. Um, Sarah told me that she has something that she wants to share with us. (laughs) I do. Um, We've had uh, just a a really um, tremendous um, outpouring of support from our listeners. And there were a couple of emails that uh, made me cry. So I'm going to read them to you on the spot. They're not even in front of you um, because I just, I really... You know, one of the things that we always say on this show is how connected we feel with our listeners. And when we get to meet you at events, which of course are not happening right now because of this um, pandemic, um, there's always a, a different connection that we have when we meet regular listeners compared to meeting people who follow our other content but don't necessarily listen to the podcast. And these... Um, really supportive emails. I I just, I felt, um, so grateful and I just wanted to share them and thank, um, everyone who, who took the time to, to write to us over the last few weeks. Um, this first one is from Liza and she wrote, I'm ever thankful for all the wonderful and empowering health information you research and share with us, but I never write to tell you that. However, I just had to write you after having read your latest email and listened to your and Stacy's podcast. I want to express my deepest appreciation to you for the beautiful way you're choosing to speak out at this historic moment to address our national disgrace of systemic racism and economic and social inequity. I give you my heartfelt thanks for your commitment to use your platform to advocate for the social transformation we so urgently need. May your voice helps spark conversations and inspire positive action from the members of your online community with gratitude and hopefulness, Liza. Thanks, Liza. I feel like it's the least we can do. And like, it's, it's fascinating to me that um, speaking out against racism is an act of bravery, like, because that seems ridiculous when you say it like that right like yeah um I I feel like I've said on the show a million times there is no should statements right and in my mind I'm like I should have done this earlier why didn't we talk about this earlier but that doesn't 
do anything or change anything. So all we can do is continue to make the commitment to talk about racial inequities in health, science-backed, data-driven information as it comes up. Like, Sarah, I think um, last week we included some information that we might not have sought out to include before. And that's part of the Mm -hmm. listening and learning process that I hope we're all doing, you know? The second email I wanted to read to you is from Lisa. Um, And Lisa wrote, hi, Sarah and Stacey. This is not a question, but a thank you for your episode on the whole view, racial disparities in health and Black Lives Matter. First, I've been following you for three years. Asking a question that became an episode, do I have to take supplements forever, was the reason I got a Facebook account and found a rich and welcoming AIP community. You've contributed greatly to the success I have found in my AIP journey, and for that I am forever grateful. I am a Black, first-generation Canadian. Like Black people around the world, racism is part of my daily life. The events in the U.S. and here in Canada have hurt me deeply. I watch the news and weep every day, and I started to be more critical of the other media I consume, more specifically of the media that pretends that my people, Black people, don't exist. I left every group and unsubscribed from every podcast that did not acknowledge what is happening right now. You both are an example of how acknowledgement can be done right. You backed up saying Black Lives Matter by actually acting on it. I'm so pleased that you both did not take the easy road out, that you didn't say our podcast is not for this, that you were honest about your own social locations. You have reinforced that I really am part of this community. Love to you and yours, Lisa. Okay, now I'm crying. Yeah. Um, I'm so grateful that Lisa and whoever else is feeling included because you are included. We are America. Everyone is deserving of a community of health, of wellness, of equal treatment. And there's nothing I could want more than to know that people feel that way. So thank you for letting us know. Uh, I told you it would make you cry. Good job. (laughs) I stayed strong through the first one. I know. I Ugh. cried. I cried when I first read it. And I was like, oh, I really have to read this to Stacey on the spot and just get that reaction on the podcast. Okay. So while we're on this topic, can I talk about something that I'm a little frustrated by that I... A little? A little. Just, um, a, just a smidgen of frustration, a sousson of frustration. Warning, rant coming. Um, so over the last few weeks... Um, there's been a, there's been a lot, which I mean, I'm just going to set that over here for a minute. One of the things that, um, I've read about is, and heard about and seen about and, you know, watched videos on is this idea of why do we need to wear masks? Why are we social distancing with COVID if people are just, um, gonna march and if people are marching, then we don't need to do all this other stuff. Like, why is it that this is an exception, but this other thing doesn't exist? And um, so I just want to, I want to share my thoughts on this. And I know, Sarah, you can Mm -hmm. um, share some um, science and information potentially on this, but this is just my personal, my personal little rant. So um, here's the thing is when a community of people is being, um, oppressed and um, are vulnerable from a number of societal abuses and discrimination, 
and they want to use their voice and um, their rights as Americans to peacefully protest. And most of them are, in fact, wearing masks to mm-hmm. do this. Um, and then we turn it around and complain. Like, what? why do we have a say in that, first of all? Yeah. Second of all, if you feel like your family... Many of these people genuinely worry about their children, their husbands, their fathers, their wives, their loved ones going out and being killed. Or in some cases, like Breonna Taylor, didn't even leave her home and did nothing wrong and was killed. So this is not about that. This is about if you genuinely felt like your life was in at risk, that the life of your loved ones were at risk, um, then the risk of potentially getting COVID doesn't really quantify. And it's not our job. It's not our right to say how someone goes about trying to get equal rights. Like it's, what I have learned over the past couple of months is I need to stop talking. I need to stop thinking. I mean, I'm a control freak. I have a lot of opinions and I might walk into something and I might say, Oh, I know how this should go. Or I, I, you know, whatever it is, I might have this thing in my head where I just assume because I'm a know-it-all that, um, that I know what's right. And I don't know what's right because I have not lived that life and I don't have that experience and I can't put that thought on someone else. And so first of all, like it's, it's not our choice. Second of all, um, a lot of these people are wearing masks and Mm -hmm. third of all, majority of them, there are people out there exploiting this. Um, I put a link in the show notes to an article about someone. I'm not going to say their name. I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to deal with that with podcast (laughs) liabilities (laughs) or whatever. Um, But there, there's an article about a woman who is um, not unknown. She, you know, is, is a name in influential communities who tried to use um, the ability to gather in large groups for peaceful protests, which is afforded to us under the constitution um, as justification for a large gathering for her children's graduation party. And um, I just think if we're, if we're going to complain and if we're going to point at things like, why aren't we complaining and pointing at things like that instead Mm -hmm. of, People who are trying to get equal treatment. Like, I, I just, I have a very hard time understanding the thought process there. And I, while I have this, you know, rant, what I want to say is, like, if, if you don't like it, just don't participate. Like, just, you don't have to, you don't have to be there. You don't have to worry about COVID exposure or not exposure or whatever. If it's not for you, then just don't go. Um, Or if you're worried about your health, I have, I have people in my life who would love to go to a march, but are worried. And so they're doing other things in other ways because that is I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people, right? I am terrified of COVID um, because I've had pneumonia eight times, um, including already having had the experience of such severe shortness of breath due to pneumonia that I had to go to the hospital. Um, and that was just like an opportunistic rando bacteria that wasn't a, you know, pandemic virus that actually attacks the lungs. So I'm, I'm, 
I mean, I'm not leaving my house, but I still super support this movement and I am trying to find as many ways as I can to actively show my support while also, you know, I, I am not, I mean, I, the last time I went to a grocery store was three weeks ago and I had such a full blown anxiety attack when I, by the time I got into the car that I haven't left my house or like empty neighborhood streets since, um, which I know we'll talk about more in a bit as we're sort of updating quarantine. Um, so I, you know, I am one of those people who, if there wasn't a pandemic, I would be marching, um, in solidarity and I'm, I'm not, and I'm just trying to find as many other really tangible ways that I can support the Black Lives Matter movement and um, this advocacy for equality um, in the absence of feeling safe going to actual marches and protests. Do you have information and science on how they've affected? I know we're going to talk about getting Mm -hmm. into COVID and there are some states that are doing better than others. Is it related to marches? I, I'm assuming not, but that's an assumption because I know here in yeah. Virginia we're actually on a decline, and there have been a lot of marches in, um, you know, Virginia and DC. But I'm kind of curious if there's relative correlation or anything like that. So um, I think it's really important to emphasize the importance of mask use. And one of the things that has been really ubiquitous across all of the, you know, 800 plus protests uh, for Black Lives Matter is that um, the you see a lot of mask use in those marches. Um, a lot of them where they can be done with social distancing are also incorporating social distancing. And of course, they're all done outdoors. Um, I have a, a new um, blog post this week on the science of face masks. It is very compelling. No, it will not cause carbon dioxide poisoning or hypoxia. Um, and um, even regular fabric cloth masks can have filtration efficiencies almost um, as high as surgical masks. Um, and so when everybody's wearing them, let's say, let's say it's only a 90%, like that would be a pretty meh, um, cloth mask that's at 90%. Um, if you're talking, if you have two people having a conversation, um, and one person, the person who's sick is wearing a mask, only 10% of the viral particles basically are able to escape. The other 90% are being trapped. And if you have that second person, the healthy person, also wearing a mask, that mask is still filtering 90%. So now it's taking 90% of the 10% that went through. So now only 1% is getting through. And as soon as you add a little bit of distance and some airflow, you're now talking about a situation where the likelihood of infection is way lower. So when you're in these situations where everyone is wearing masks, that is a huge protecting factor. The other part that's helping to protect the protesters is the fact that they're outdoors. So um, there was a a study just published this month that uh, showed that basically just sun exposure. So this wasn't, again, taking into account airflow, dispersal, right? All of these other things that would help to lower risk of exposure, but just looking at how aerosols of the novel coronavirus can survive and showed that 11 to 34 minutes in midday sun in most U.S. cities was sufficient to deactivate 90% of the virus. Um, And that's because it's quite sensitive to UV. That 
has to, you know, how much UV is in our light depends on time of day, time of year, latitude, cloud cover, right? So there's a lot of, that's why there's a huge range. But it also means that um, that combination of most protesters wearing masks and it being outdoors is what is protecting them um, because we have not seen spikes in COVID um, that are attributable to protests yet. There have been plenty, there's plenty of spikes in COVID um, that have been related to indoor gatherings across um, the country, um, things or been related to things like bars, right? So there's those indoor environments are still very, very challenging. And a lot of those spikes are also related to indoor gatherings without mask use, which, um, I, I, I mean, I, I have many thoughts on that. Um, so, so far, we haven't seen uh, a spike in, in cases that could be attributable to protest. Minneapolis actually set up four community testing sites that were specifically for people who attended protests um, in Minneapolis and St. John. And they, uh, I think they tested like four and a half thousand people. They had a 1.4% positivity rate, um, which is basically the same positivity rate that you would expect given uh, how, you know, we're up above 2 million cases now, right? It's like 2.2 million cases in America. Um, that 1% or 1.4% positivity rate is about what you would expect for community spread um for any community in this country right now like our our full um positive rate is climbing up towards 10 percent again in this country that's obviously different than these sort of community testing sites that were really designed to monitor um whether or not coronavirus was being spread um through the protests but at the same time you know this is data showing that at least for now and probably largely attributable to mask use, um, we're, we're not seeing that the protests are, you know, causing these huge spikes in coronavirus cases. I, if you could see me, I would be raising the roof and dropping the mic. Oh, at the same time? At the that's same like, time. Like one handed. That's kind of like rubbing your belly and patting your head at the same time. <laughs> um, okay. So speaking of outdoors and UV light, and um, case numbers, can I tell you what we have planned? I know we're going to talk more about what's going on and what happened to us and blah, blah, blah. But where we are right now <laughs> is I am in a desperate state to get out of this house. It's been <laughs> since February and I have three boys and um, my husband works all the time. Um, he had off while we were home recovering from COVID. But um, once he went back, like there was not even any easing into work. He's been working essentially 13 days out of 14 until the last week or two when everybody is coming back. Virginia is now in phase two. Um, I don't know if other states have phases or what's happening, but our governor is a medical doctor and um, is very strict. Our whole state requires masks if you go anywhere in public. Like, it's not a decision that a store can make. It's, like, mandatory. And um, It is so not the same experience as my state. And, and our numbers are going 
down. That's another thing is um, you don't progress till the next phase until there's been a certain amount of time and a certain number of uh, decreases in cases. And so certain counties of the of the state are doing better than others, dependent on population and if they're following protocols and all that kind of stuff. So um, our whole state, I think, at this point is now in or beyond phase two. And um, we have decided that after being cooped up in this house for so long with the boys that we're going to take a glamping trip. I've talked about glamping on the Mm -hmm. podcast before, Sarah, you're a hardcore camper in a way that I appreciate, but do not want to do. Um, (laughs) I would like air conditioning and Wi-Fi and a kitchen and a bathroom. Okay. Thanks. So, so funny because we actually refer to like we do car camping and we still refer to it as glamping because we have like a mosquito screen that goes around the picnic table. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's what makes it glamping. We're still sleeping in tents. Okay. Um, no, that's yeah. not glamping, but that's okay. cute. Um, <laughs> I mean, if that's glamping, then I'm going on yeah, a luxury retreat. Rest. Yes. Yeah. So we have got, we rented a rustic cabin. So we'll bring all of our own linens. We'll bring our own pillows. We'll bring our own everything. Um, and it's a week in the wilderness outside on a lake where the boys can paddleboard and kayak and be outside and be active. Um, Our neighborhood has not been social distancing as much as I would like, or I think is safe, Um, especially because I don't want to be responsible. If one, if we were to get sick, for example, I wouldn't want to be then responsible for an entire neighborhood getting sick because the kids were all playing together or whatever. So um, the kids have really been not allowed to leave our yard um, for, you know, four months or however long it's been. And we're all over it. Like I'm over it. They're over it. We're tired of this house. We're (laughs) we're tired of everything. And so Matt got days off. Finally, Um, all of that was to say that the people who worked at the post office who had decided because of health conditions or other reasons, um, they were able to kind of like take a leave to protect themselves are coming back now that um, we're moving through phases and things are a little more safe. And so now that some of the people are back, Matt's getting days off and we're going away. And um, it's big. I mean, it was like a big decision on our part, but I feel confident in that, you know, we're packing all of the food. We're, you know, we're not going out to eat. We're not interacting with other people. It's just a different location, but the same social distance plan. So I'll let you know how that goes <laughs> next week, um, I guess. I, uh, yeah, we actually had a, a similar conversation about uh, going for, on a camping trip this summer and decided not to go. Um, and it was the realization that when we go, we typically go to a state park um, and we typically go up into the mountains somewhere and uh, while we're in a tent, there's always like a shared bathroom and it was, oh wait, <laughs> like there's a shared bathroom. And that was the part that went, okay, we're, we're not, we're not there yet. Um, but I think that for me, um, I am experiencing a lot of stress around how my state is opening up. Um, and in part that's because, um, 
Mask use in this country, it's really interesting. I've been looking at various polls. And you, if you look at a poll of like what how, what people think of masks, like everyone's like, no, I don't feel judged for wearing a mask. And uh, no, masks aren't like emasculating or like masks are masks are effective. And you can see these polls where like 80, 90 percent of people are like pro mask. But then when you actually ask people if they're wearing them, they're not right. So, or at least not enough are. So, um, they're the most recent, it was like a Gallup poll was basically around a third of Americans were wearing masks at all times outside of their homes. Um, a third of Americans were sometimes wearing masks outside of their homes and a third of Americans were not wearing masks at all. And, um, and so one of the things that I've seen compared to, you know, I think we had this conversation at one point, Stacey, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or if it was just uh, us chit-chatting for an hour after we finished recording. But, um, you know, I had said, like, at the beginning of this, I felt safer going to the grocery store myself and social distancing and wearing my mask and, you know, hand sanitizer and I could control what I touched and not touch my face. And at the beginning of this, you know, I was – the very many people in the stores. I'd go first thing when it opened. Um, and I would say like 80 to 90% of the people that I was encountering were wearing masks and social distancing. And I went uh, three weeks ago to the grocery store. And again, same, same time of day, like all of those factors were the same. And maybe a quarter of the people in the store were wearing masks. And the people who weren't, it wasn't just like we're social distancing, so we don't need to wear a mask. Um, it was, uh, you know, I'm not worried about it. And as somebody who, I don't want to say I'm high risk, because I think if you look at the list of risk factors, I can't really check those boxes. I consider myself moderate risk. I'm definitely concerned about um, the possibility of having a uh, more severe course of COVID if I get it. And, um, and so to be in a grocery store where a quarter of the people in the store were wearing masks and social distancing, and then the three quarters that weren't wearing masks were like, you know, just, I mean, like cutting you off with their cart to grab the thing while I'm waiting for the space to go get the thing. Um, it just felt so, um, it was, it, it felt, um, selfish. Um, I, I really felt vulnerable in that situation and I have been ordering delivery of my groceries ever since. Um, it, was awful. And I have not had an anxiety attack like that in years. Fortunately, uh, my body waited until I got into the car. Um, so I didn't have to have an audience, but it was, it was awful. It was such an awful experience. And I have said from the beginning of this, like the thing that stresses me out is the, um, is watching decisions being made that are not supported by the data. So, um, you know, we have in Georgia seen this plateau in cases, um, but the plateau is at a very high level. Like it's still, um, you know, there's still a lot of, of COVID here. Um, and it's, um, you know, like there were cases at my gym. I haven't gone to my gym since all of this started, but it's, 
there's no place that's exempt. And um, it feels harder to protect myself when it's not a community action to protect each other anymore. And, um, and that's not to say that everyone's disregarding um, recommendations to wear face masks and social distance, but there's just enough people disregarding it to make it feel, um, uh, to make me feel anyways, like it's not safe to go out in public. And, um, and so that, that's been for me the hardest part, you know, we're sort of talking about, they haven't announced how they're going to handle school in the fall. Um, you know, what they're, my husband's work is, is still, um, you know, figuring out all of their logistics for what they're going to do. Um, so we're still waiting for that information before we make choices about what, you know, how we're going to respond. Um, you know, I don't want to have to pull my kids out of school because they just decided to go back full time and not worry about the global pandemic. Um, I don't think that's what they'll do, but it's that to me has been the hardest part. I feel much safer in my own home and my own yard and walking around the quiet streets of my neighborhood where, you know, it's really easy to cross the street if you see somebody else out for a walk and, you know, maintain that social distancing. Um, it's, it's been really challenging for me psychologically, uh, to, to watch, like there are ways that we can be opening up the economy that are safer than what I'm observing around me. I, um, I can't imagine that because I'm not there, but I do understand the anxiety. So I'll talk about my own yeah. anxiety a little bit. Um, so one of the questions that I've gotten many times is, do I have antibodies? So you might've been listening to me talking about my planning and being like, well, Stacey, what are you worried about? You already got COVID. Um, so here's the thing. I don't have antibodies and we took a test early that we knew had a high false negative rate. And so I attributed it to that and I wasn't worried. And then, um, we special ordered a more accurate test and I took that last week and was crushed to find out that um, I do not have antibodies. And so I know, Sarah, you have done a lot of research to help me. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I mean, I remember having that same, it wasn't quite an anxiety attack, but it, I mean, that heavy level of anxiety that changed my breathing, that I, you know, difficulty kind of thought process and sleeping for a couple of days, um, really feeling overwhelmed because I had chicken pox twice. And there is some research to suggest that there are different types of immune response to getting different kinds of um, illness. I don't know if mm -hmm. it's just a virus or if it's both virus and bacteria, but that the body could then actually have a worst case the second time. And I was freaking out <laughs> that because my case was so mild, like my first case of chicken pox, um, according to my mother, I don't remember it because I was less than one, um, that the second time that I got chicken pox, it was so terrible. It was like inside my eyeballs. It, 
it got into my immune system and was like everywhere. Um, I mean, I guess it was every in everybody's immune system, but you know what I'm saying? It wasn't yeah. just like topically on the outside where I touched. Um, that my concern was that Matt was going to bring COVID home again, um, physically mm-hmm. on him. He would be immune assuming, let's say, um, but that if he touched something or whatever, he's still going through the basement because I was so paranoid. Like I'm still making him strip and shower and do all that kind of stuff because I'm worried. And I, I'm, I would like for you to share with people what you told me about. (laughs) It's okay, Stacey, you can still sleep. It's okay. You're not going to die. I believe was the most important message I had for you. Um, yeah, so what's, I, I also did antibody testing, uh, two weeks ago, um, because I had, you know, two days where I felt some malaise in late February and I was really hoping that was it. Um, and my antibody testing also came back negative. Um, and I spent, oh, 15 or 20 hours researching different antibody tests to find a really high quality one. Um, so I think there's 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 three different pieces to talk about this. So one is how good the antibody tests are, and the answer is for most of them, not that. Um, and uh, what percentage of people are developing antibodies? And then that extra little piece of um, re- what does a reinfection actually mean if you are getting something like a childhood disease that you're only ever supposed to get once, like chickenpox, twice? Um, so that's actually... Um, let's actually tackle that last part first. So, um, our immune systems are not fully developed until we're about one. And so there is sort of well known that, uh, if you get one of these childhood diseases, chickenpox is a, is a well-known example at less than one, that, um, there is a higher likelihood of not developing immunological memory. So immunological memory is basically, uh, a catch-all term for all of the different ways that our immune system remembers a specific pathogen so that the next time you're exposed to that pathogen, it can mount a response before that virus or bacteria can replicate enough times that you would have symptoms. So that is why the vast majority of people only get chickenpox once. So because you were less than one when you got it the first time, that basically means your immune system wasn't fully developed. And that is why you, you got it a second time. Some people who are immune compromised, um, that can impact immunological memory. And so there is definitely cases of immune compromised people. But if you were immune compromised to that level, you would have this like litany of examples of times where you had gotten things that you're only supposed to get once, twice. Um, and it would, it would be something that was like well known about you compared to this like one example. So uh, chicken pox, when you get it the first time, less than one, it, there is a higher probability that you will get it a second time just because of the immune system taking time to, to fully develop. And chickenpox is also a, uh, is well known to, um, scale and severity with body size. It's one of the reasons why it is a, such an incredibly severe disease. If you don't get it as a child and you get it as an adult, um, it is a bajillion times worse. That's the, the actual measurement is a bajillion. Um, there's data, um, but it's, it's much worse when your body is bigger, right? Uh, no, but it's just chickenpox is sort of known to be much more severe the bigger your body was. It was almost certainly more severe. You had it the second time when you were seven or eight. 
Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you're just a seven or eight year old is a, is a fairly, you know, obviously not an adult yet, but that's a large child. Um, so it was likely, you know, just that much worse just because your body was that much bigger. Um, and it's just, you know, chicken spox, basically the higher the surface area, the worse it is because you can get more pox. Um, so the having ch- had chicken pox twice, um, is not an indicator by itself that you would be immune compromised enough to be susceptible to COVID twice. So that's piece one. Um, piece two is, um, you know, these antibody testing, right? The first one you did, um, had a 10% false negative rate. And actually this is one of the things that I really wanted to make sure our listeners knew is that there's, um, there's been hundreds of antibody tests that have gotten this emergency use authorization, and they're not all good. In fact, a very small percentage of them are good. And so it's really important if you were looking at doing a test to know three different things about that test. So one is the false negative rate. So that is what percentage of the time you are positive, like you have antibodies, but the test will tell you that you're negative. And so that first test that you did, Stacey, had a 10% false negative rate, which meant that like one in 10 people with antibodies, it would still show up as negative. The other thing to know is the false positive rate. Um, So that's what percentage of the time you're negative, but the test tells you you're positive. So it's basically what what percent of the time is the test wrong and in which direction? Um, most of these tests have fairly low false positive rates. So there's a very low chance that if it comes back and says you have antibodies that you don't really. Um, but a lot of them have fairly high false negative rates. Ideally, it shouldn't be more than 1%. So 10% is like, it's not a good test. Um, the other thing to know is that these tests are measuring basically uh, mostly just two forms of antibodies, IgM and IgG. Um, IgM antibodies are some of our like early response antibodies. They um, ramp up sooner after we've been infected, um, and then they come down once symptoms start to go away. Um, IgG antibodies are a slower response to ramp up, and then they stay high usually for at least a few months. So as a normal immune response. That's what would be happening with those antibodies. So it's the tests that have much, much higher sensitivity and specificity are the tests that are measuring both. Um, So um, I highly recommend anybody who's thinking about doing antibody testing to find a test that does both IgM and IgG. Stacey and I both did the tests from Access Labs. Um, and that was one of a few different tests that my doctor was able to directly order for me. Stacey, you ordered, I think, direct from Access Labs. Um, but I think um, and that's not the only good test around. That was, you know, just where I was like, oh, this one's A, easy for me to get, and B, very, very high quality test. Um, It is a test that has two steps. So it first has incredibly high sensitivity. So it has a a 100% sensitivity rate. Um, So it's like, do you have antibodies, yes or no? And then it goes and tells you how much antibodies. Um, We still don't know with COVID what level of antibodies is enough to say you're protected. But here is, here's where things get really complicated. So there was a a study published in uh, Nature Medicine uh, like two weeks ago, maybe, that actually looked at antibody production and compared severe cases versus mild. So all of these antibody tests, they have these 
um, sensitivity and specificity rates that are measured by confirming their test against samples from patients who were hospitalized with COVID. So these were patients who had positive PCR tests um, while they were sick. And generally, right, they have a lot of, they were, had a lot of blood samples taken because they were in a hospital. So the these all of these antibody tests are confirmed against severe cases. What this um, Nature paper showed is that 40% of the people who were asymptomatic, so they compared asymptomatic to severe, had no antibodies by the time their infection was over. So they actually showed that this is a, a fun side fact, is that these people who were asymptomatic were shedding virus for an average of 19 days. So asymptomatic, contagious for almost three weeks. Um, and that by the end of that three weeks, they had no measurable antibodies. 12.9% um, of their symptomatic group also had no antibodies by the time their symptoms were over. So by the time active infection was done, um, which means that if you're not going to measure antibodies in that perfect window. And if you have a mild case, you don't even know necessarily when that window is. Um, there's a really high percentage chance that you're missing antibodies. Like you're, you're just missing the window of time when there was antibodies to measure. And so we, we can deduce just from what we know about how the immune system works that a mild case, like what the Toth McCary household had, um, would be much more similar to an asymptomatic case in terms of antibody production than to a severe case in terms of antibody production. So antibodies might not be a really great test for measuring immunity. The other piece of this is, um, so what's fascinating about the SARS-CoV-2 virus is it has a bunch of different ways that it evades detection by our immune systems, which is one of the reasons why it's sort of a long illness. It gets a much longer time than normal to ramp up um, its viral replication by like hijacking our cells before our immune system actually goes, oh, wait, oh, you're not supposed to be here. And it's because the virus itself can um, basically uh, evade detection by our immune systems through two different mechanisms. One is through interfering with the production of a class of pro-inflammatory cytokines that are, are messenger chemicals that our immune system used to basically say like, hey, look, I found this bad thing. Everybody, you know, everybody get to work, immune system. Um, so this class of chemicals called interferons we know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can actually suppress their secretion. Um, so until there's basically enough virus, that there's enough signal that the, the immune system basically can see it, even though there isn't very much interferon. But interferon also helps to direct which types of immune cells are going to be most active. And so one of the things, there's been actually quite a few papers now showing that the immune response to the novel coronavirus is mediated by uh, T cells, in particular type one helper T cells, rather than type two, which controls B cells, which make the antibodies. Okay, so oversimplification. There, there's these two different sides. We've, you know, we've probably a lot of our listeners have probably heard about Th1 and Th2 balancing before in the context of autoimmune system. Our on the context of autoimmune disease, that's an oversimplification. Um, and 
autoimmune disease doesn't actually work that way. It's not just that if you stimulate one and suppress the other, your autoimmune disease is going to go away. However, type one helper T cells, they're like, these helper T cells are like middle management and they basically direct the cells that are actually doing the fighting of the pathogen. They direct, they're, they're like telling them what to do. And so what type one helper T cells do is they direct cytotoxic T cells whose job it is, is to find infected cells and kill them. Type two helper T cells direct B cells whose job it is, is to make antibodies. And so we've got all of these studies showing now that the immune response to COVID is type one driven and that actually there's no change in B cell activation compared to a healthy person. So our immune response is not actually antibody driven. What's happening is our immune system is going around and killing infected cells, not going around and making antibodies that neutralize the virus directly. That that is the, there, there's a little bit of it, but not a ton. And that's why we're not seeing the type of antibody formation that would help us measure immunity, that's not how the immune system's responding to this virus at all. So um, there's a lot of different ways that our immune system can remember a pathogen. So there's a lot of different ways that we can have immunological memory, and we can have immunological memory through memory T cells. Um, so we actually know from studies of um, SARS-CoV-1, which caused the SARS epidemics in 2002 and 2003, that that virus was also, the response was Th1 driven, not Th2. Um, so we know that memory T cells can persist in patients for at least four years after infection. Um, we don't know yet if that, you know, what happens to those memory T cells, if it's long-term immunity or, you know, just a few years, but either way, at least for the near future, um, we can deduce that if you've had it, you, you're still immune. And it's, but it's through this thing that we don't really have um, testing ca capacity for. I mean, that labs, like research labs, can test for memory T cells and do that, just do that with a blood sample. But it's, there's no, test that has been developed to measure immunity in this way for like anything else. It's not, it's not a normal test. It's not a normal thing. It uses flow cytometry with different antibodies. Like it's a, it's a pretty, um, it's a technique that is used in research, but is not typically used in uh, phlebotomy at all right now. So um, what a negative antibody test means for um, someone like me given that I, I can't really point to, aha, I was sick with the classic symptoms of COVID. Um, you know, what for me, it probably means I haven't been exposed, but there's a fair amount of doubt, but enough, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I've had, I mean, if I was just going to assume I had it, I wouldn't have bothered, you know, getting the antibody test in the first place for Stacy. Um, it, you know, it certainly throws this little seed of doubt, was that really COVID? But given that the symptoms were so classic, the course of disease was so classic, you know, what it really shows is that you had a mild enough case that, that you didn't develop antibodies, but your immune system is almost certainly remembering it through these memory T cells rather than, than antibody production. And we did have a diagnosis. I, just, I also want to reiterate mm -hmm. that. I think, you know, what was unfortunate for us is that our state did not have tests available at that time. Um, we 
literally could not get a test. Um, so we do have that doubt, but at the same time, uh, an illness that had every symptom that has now been determined, including shortness of breath, um, seems unlikely that it was something else. Um, well, and you know it wasn't the flu or strep because yes, Matt because did it get tested. tested. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it is what it is. At the same time, um, I think the answer is the same answer that kind of brings us back to the top of the show, which is that I don't wear a mask for me. I wear a mask for somebody else. And this is um, yeah. a topic that I think I, I want to reiterate one more time um, because – I've seen a lot of people say things like, well, I eat healthy and I sleep and I I have modified my lifestyle and I feel confident in my immune system. Awesome. You know, I, I was super grateful that my immune system was able to manage the mild course of the virus that we got. And whether I had anything to do with that or not, I don't know. But I am certainly grateful that we did not develop a severe course But had I not been wearing a mask, had I not been protecting others, who knows what could happen to someone else? And you never know if you have something and you're asymptomatic, especially if you're a healthy person um, in general, that you could be passing it along to someone who is more immunocompromised or is higher risk or even could be a healthy person that gets a severe course. This is you Mm -hmm. are not safe from a severe course, no matter how healthy and fit you are. There are people who have died from COVID who were otherwise, by definition, the picture of health. And we don't want that for anybody. And so when we go out in public, when I go out in public, when we made this decision to go glamping and we had a really difficult time trying to find a place that we felt comfortable going because we didn't want to go to a hotel. We didn't want to have to eat out. We didn't, you know, we didn't want to have to share a bathroom. All of these things came into play. It was like, well, how can we still be in a bubble, but somewhere else? Um, (laughs) Because that's where we are. And we don't want to have the risk of, let's say we did have COVID and um, we could potentially still give it to someone else. I don't think that that's Mm -hmm. the case, but you know, it's our job to keep people protected and to wear masks. And um, it's different. Like I had my father over for Father's Day and this was a decision that we all made. And, you know, they know that we had COVID and have been symptom free for over a month. And we sat outside, we didn't hug each other. And we had Father's Day dinner. Is that a decision that is right for everyone? I don't know. But I do know that it's allowed in my state and that we made decisions to be as smart about it as possible. But if someone doesn't know those things and are not making those decisions, right? It's like, that was my father's choice. That was my choice. That was our family's decision. But if someone is going out and not wearing a mask, like you're impeding your decision on somebody else in a way that could harm them. And I just feel like it's our job to be mindful of and take care of others. I've, I've always been, I'm a, um, Enneagram 8, which gets a lot of bad rap for being a control freak, which I've mentioned already. But another thing that we are is really protective of the vulnerable. It's like, um, I'm really justice driven. I'm very like, 
I must protect those who need it mindset. And to me, I'm like, why not? Like, why not wear a mask? Like, what's it? What's it harming? I know it's uncomfortable. My kids had to go to the doctors last week. Um, and masks are required. They have special hours for sick patients versus well patients. And they're cleaning between and they're doing all these things. And it was like the first time that we'd been out, right? And the kids were wearing masks and Wesley in particular, who has a very small face, we'd already made adjustments to his mask to account for that. But still, it was like not staying on and it was super uncomfortable. And he was like, I don't want to wear this. I'm like, too bad. Like this, this is yeah. what it is. And I, I know that it's unfortunate and that it's frustrating and that it's new and change is hard and it feels weird. That's okay. That's, that's what change is. And we're doing it to protect not just ourselves, but other people. So second rant of the day. <sighs> Um, well, if you include mine, I think we're up to like 17. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think, I mean, that's, thank you for saying that because, um, you know, I have been surprised by the vehemence against masks that I have seen online. Um, and it's, I think what's happening I'm hoping this is what's happening is that, you know, this has been hard. This has been hard for everybody and it's impacted all of us in slightly different ways, but it's, you know, we're, we're not in our normal routine. Um, you know, many people are working from home who never have before. Many people are laid off and have all of the financial stress on top of, um, all of the just like social stress, um, we're not getting our outlets, you know, our social outlets or, things like, you know, going to the gym, right? Like it's, um, we've got, you know, we're all of a sudden multitasking in ways we've never had to before with the kids at home. We're having to figure out how they can still learn um, and not just spend, you know, 12 hours a day playing video games, right? Like it's, there's so many different challenges and there's a huge spectrum, but, but nobody that I know anyways has not been uh, deeply affected by this complete disruption of our daily lives. And, you know, I totally appreciate the feeling of being over it and just wanting things to return to normal. Um, the problem is, is that wanting things to be normal is not enough for things to actually be normal. And we risk, um, it's not even just risking our own health, right? It's risking the lives of the most vulnerable in our community by, by pretending that, um, that it's done, that it's over. Um, we're at 2.2 million confirmed cases in the USA right now. Um, and it's, um, you know, granted that number also includes people who have recovered, right? But it's, uh, we're seeing in roughly half of the states, um, cases are spiking again. And it's in large part because of the reliance for opening things back up, which I know we're all eager to get back to life as normal, that can only happen if we each take responsibility to not just protect ourselves, but protect others. And that includes social distancing, wearing a mask, 
and hand washing. Those are the, those are the three things, the three things that we can do and like not shake hands and not give hugs and right. Those types of that falls under social distancing. Right. And it doesn't need to mean social isolation. Um, but if we can all accept mask wearing and distance as our new normal with understanding that if you're outside sitting around a table in the backyard, um, that is maybe a situation where you don't need to wear a mask, right? Like the, the, it doesn't mean that we need to be physically uncomfortable for 18 hours a day. Wait, that's not enough sleep. 16 hours a day. Um, but it, 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 it is, um, it is the thing that we do to take ourselves out of the pool of people spreading. This is how we get the reproductive number below one so that this can be a virus that fizzles out because it basically stops having people it can jump to from one to the other. And it can't jump because we are making it try to filter through two masks in order to get to that person as well as a six foot distance. And I, I, I feel um, also you know, like I, I, I feel the frustration. I, I feel the longing for, for normalcy. Um, I have one of my kids is having a really hard time with the idea that school might not be completely back to normal. She's really, um, feeling very challenged, not, not having, um, in-person interactions with her friends. Um, and it's, you know, it's, we're having to develop all kinds of skills around that and, and address the mental health aspect of it. I, I really do feel compassion to that, but at the same time, this, this pandemic is still here and this is, uh, until we've got really effective treatments or preventatives, this is what we've got. We've got social distancing and mask wearing. And if we can't figure out masks, we're going to end up shut down again and stuck in our homes at all times. Like it is, it really is like, the economy opening up successfully, especially once the weather starts cooling down in the fall, because there is some good science showing that one of the reasons why we have a plateau in so many states or cases decreasing is more related to the weather than it is related to mask wearing and social distancing and all of those other things that we're doing. So especially when things get going in the fall, if we can't figure this out by then, you know, the, the consequences are going to be more cases and more people dying. And I for one, I'm not willing to contribute to that. And I will continue to wear a mask and social distance for as long as it takes to get through this pandemic. I think that is the second mic drop of the show. <laughs> Rant number 18. I want to thank you listeners for tuning in. I hope that you are doing well. I know it's difficult. And um, whether you are choosing to completely stay home or whether your father also came over for Father's Day and you're going camping or if you're in a state that's wide open and you've done that just please keep in mind um, that we are trying to help others as well as ourselves, and that the things that are shown to reduce risk such as hand washing and wearing masks can continue to be done even if it's not required. And um, we hope that you stay safe and are well, and we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks. 
Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in. Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.